Howdy folks. This is our first episode of the Alt Rich podcast. Really excited about this project. Definitely a little nervous. So I hope that you enjoy. The Alt Rich is a lifestyle brand. Our goal is to inspire you to live the life of your dreams. We're going to be creating a bunch of content focused on helping you better understand the life that you want to be living and then giving you practical advice on how you can make it happen. In addition to that, we're going to be highlighting various individuals who are already living their best lives. We're going to be sharing their journeys and we're going to be picking up on tips and tricks that they have learned along their path. To start, we're going to be focusing on this podcast which we're going to be releasing weekly. We're also going to be making content for our YouTube channel, and then we'll have a bunch of written content, my favorite, <laughs> for all of you all out there that still like to read. If you're interested in being highlighted on our podcast, send us a message on Instagram. Our handle is thealtrich, or you can also contact us, uh, contact us via email at thealtrich at gmail.com. We're super excited about this project, and if you have any feedback or if you have any things that you want to learn about, definitely reach out to us. I'm now going to take a little bit and just describe the ethos or the background of this project so you can understand where we're coming from and what we're trying to accomplish. So I grew up, I'm 27 years old right now, I grew up in the United States, very traditional childhood, nothing out of the ordinary, and I always knew that I just felt out of place. I had an idea of the traditional career path. I went to college after high school and I was expected to get a job and to start a career. But none of that fit for me. None of that seemed like it was what I wanted. <clears throat> I remember when I was a kid, people would ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I just said, I want to be happy. <laughs> that was my goal. I want to be happy. And no one ever taught me how to accomplish that. There was no book, there was no guideline, there was no class. I learned math, I practiced algebra, I learned grammar to some degree, but no one ever really discussed the important stuff like what is it that brings fulfillment? What is it that brings happiness and joy into our lives? And so I spent a long, long, long time struggling. Years, years of my life I spent struggling uncertain if what I was striving for was possible, uncertain if I was capable of achieving these goals, and feeling out of place as all of my peers around me started their lives, started their careers, started building these things. And for me, it seemed like I had nothing. But ultimately, I think and I feel that it was worth it. And I'm, I'm no master, but I have a grasp now of what it is that I want, what it is that brings me joy, and I know how to accomplish and achieve these things. So this, this podcast, just as I am, is a work in progress. I'm hoping that as this is transmitted, you all learn and grow from it. And as I create these things, I also will learn and grow this beautiful symbiotic relationship that we can have. I can discover myself while helping you all discover yourselves. So 
that's that's all for this podcast. I want to keep them short and I want to keep them accessible. I'm really excited and really nervous as well about this whole project. This is my first time taking on a task or a project like this. So I hope that you all like it and I hope that you all give me a bit of a bit of grief and a bit of uh, flexibility. But stay tuned because we're going to be making a lot of really, really awesome content. And I know that there are people out there that can really, really value and benefit from this. So I'm excited and I hope you are too. Until next week, go live your lives, folks. All right. <coughs> What's up, Altrich fam? It's your boy here. We are doing our second podcast right now. I'm pretty excited about this. I have some really cool things that I want to talk with you all about, and I hope that everyone enjoys. So today we are going to be talking about work, work in the modern era. I want to describe a little bit about the history of work. I want to talk to people about where we came from, where our ancestors, kind of the way our ancestors lived, and then try and connect everything together with describing the current situation that so many of us find ourselves in and elaborate a little bit more on why it is that so many of us are slaving away, working super long hours, crushing it at our jobs, but not really crushing it in life. So let's begin. So I've got a cool picture here you all can't see, but it's describing the life of the modern man. It's one of those cartoons where you see the evolution of an ape from their ape walking on all fours, ancestors, into the caveman, to the Romans, and then you have a man sitting, typing away on his cell phone, hunched over, overweight, looking sleepy, tired, and sad. That's what a lot of us feel like nowadays. So the life of the modern man for many of us, and women, if you all get offended easily, wake up, work, consume, and go to sleep. Rinse and repeat. You might have a few days on the weekend where you get to enjoy yourself, live your true life, or if you're like a lot of us, you might just drink yourself into oblivion until 6 a.m. on Monday morning when you have to become an adult again. So this is not a normalized lifestyle. This is not a healthy lifestyle. This is a product of our culture, a product of modern society. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about the history of work. So originally, we all can trace our roots back to some kind of hunter-gatherer society. Life was a lot simpler back then. Obviously, there was a lack of technology. People were using stones. Some people had metal, but for the most part, what people were doing, they were leveraging the natural resources in their environment, i.e. gathering, and then they were hunting to get additional caloric intake. So there's actually a really, really interesting study by a guy named Marshall Sahin. He wrote an article or an essay called The Original Affluent Society. And he made the claim that people in these hunter-gatherer societies were working like three to four hours a day. And so he referenced some like actual data from, I believe it was a few different indigenous tribes that are in Africa that are still doing these foraging hunter-gatherer lifestyles. And he found that even in these modern era situations, these people were still only working three to four hours a day. So imagine, imagine that life, like you wake up in your like tent or your hut or whatever it is, you maybe mill around for a couple hours. Uh, maybe the women and the children, they go out to forage. They're gonna go pick some berries and some roots and stuff like that. 
the men are like chilling and they get together like hey bro you want to go hunt something like yeah like we didn't get anything yesterday we probably do something today you go hunt for a few hours like kill a boar or something like that hopefully it goes well hopefully no one got hurt and then voila you're done for the day you might come back prepare the meat cook the food have a huge feast and then just relax it's like it's a pretty chill way to live and uh we think they were so inept so many of us have so much disregard for the value in simplicity and the value in leisure that we think these societies were backwards and uncivilized but when you when you ask yourself that same question when you're racing down the highway because you're late for work and you're stressed and you're on 17 different medications because your body's failing you because you work 60 hours a week and you have no personal health then who is the real crazy one who is backwards in terms of technology so it's just an interesting perspective that not a lot of people have. I don't think we really got taught that in school that the hunter-gatherers kind of had it going on. Like obviously they didn't have the same amenities or the same comfort that we do have in the modern world, but they also paid a lot less to live their life in terms of meeting their base needs than we currently do in terms of our time consumption, our time expenditure to maintain our lifestyles. So that's an interesting perspective that many people don't have. The next big era in humanity was the advent, or came with the advent of agriculture. So we started to cultivate crops and we also started to domesticate animals. And what happened was we went from having a landscape with a distributed amount of natural resources, or for the most part in this case food, to having condensed areas of food. And so with this condensation of food resources, you had more and more people that started living in these societies and in these cities. And so when you have people who start to, in, when you, whenever you increase like density of populations, that's when you start to have fighting. Like if, imagine you're in a hunter-gatherer world and like you get mad at someone and they're like, maybe someone picks up an apple that you wanted to be like, bro, why'd you do that? He's like, yeah, I really want the apple. And it's like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll just go get another one. Like there was not a lack. Like the populations were constrained based on the carrying capacity of the ecosystems that where they were in. If a group of people were too large for their ecosystem, they either moved or some of those people starved and it renormalized. You never had a situation where there was uh, a lack of resources relative to the individuals or the organisms there in the environment. And so with agriculture, we have this condensation or this increasing of density in, in terms of resources and also people. And then we also saw a pretty big uptick in work along with agriculture. The main reason for that is with agriculture, your work hours for the most part revolve around crop cycles. And so when you're preparing your fields, you wanna do that as quickly as possible because you want to be able to harvest your crops as quickly as possible. So maybe you have a week where you're working 12 hours a day every day. And then you t probably take a little break because you're just waiting for the seeds to sprout. And then you have a maintenance period and then you have a harvesting period. At that harvesting period, again, like if you don't harvest everything in time, you might lose crops, you might decrease your crop yield. So again, you have one of these, what I'll call sprints, and you have a big extended period of like high level energy expenditure. And then after that, you have a big rest. So in a lot of like these historical societies, you see these big leisure and these big holiday periods. Like after, after harvest, they always had a really big holiday. And at the, in the winter, they'd always have big holidays. Like I'm, I'm looking at this thing, it's a book called The Discussion of Holidays During the Middle Ages. A woman named Edith Rogers wrote it. And she's, she's making the claim that, using historical evidence, albeit, so I can, I'll link all these sources in the notes below. 
but they're making the claim that people in France, I believe in the 1600s, were guaranteed 52 Sundays, so every Sunday off, 90 rest days, and 38 holidays. So all in all, that's almost 200 days of rest. It's a little bit less. It's, uh, it's 180 days of rest. They're working half of the year. In the modern culture, people, most people are working, I believe, it's like 250 or so days a year. So that's like a 50% increase, just under a 50% increase in what they were doing back in the dark ages. In Spain, there, there's a claim that people were guaranteed five months of holidays per year. That's five months of vacation, y'all. It's not including the weekend, and maybe they were working every day during the non-holiday period. But still, there was extended intentional periods of rest, which is something that we've really kind of let go of in this culture. And the time that this really began, this workaholic mindset began, was at the advent of the Industrial Revolution. So what the Industrial Revolution did is it allowed us to harness uh, mechanical energy or harness fossil fuels. So we can take these really, really dense energy resources, we can convert them, and then we can use them for work. And so along with this also came electricity. Thanks, Benjamin Franklin. I know it wasn't actually you. I think it was like fucking Tesla or someone like that who actually invented electricity. But we all know that Benjamin Franklin got it in the record book, so we're just going to say it was him. But so with electricity, people can work 24 hours a day. Prior to electricity, when the day ended, when the sun went down, you had a candle. Like you might like use it to cook, but you're not going to be doing something really, really demanding. You don't have the capacity to do that without electricity. And then in addition to that, we have the invention of the steam engine, which allowed for mechanical energy to be harnessed. And so that's when you start seeing factories, you start seeing the relocation of resources across countries. And that's when you see a really, really big uptick in potential work capacity. So prior to that, you could plant as many seeds as you want every day, and you're still only gonna have so many plants. That's just how farming works. With the industrial revolution, you have a massive increase in potential work capacity. And so people during the beginning of the Industrial Revolution were easily working 60 plus hours a week with a lot of people in manufacturing areas, areas working like 80 hours a week. And this is like the Silicon Valley people of today and there's a reason for that. Like when your whole, when all you need to work is a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection, then you can work all the time. And with the right drugs, you can work 100 hours a week consistently for a period of time before your body starts to fail. And so when you have this culture ethos that is all about productivity and pushing product and creating things as quickly as possible so that you don't run out of funding, it's really, really, really incentivizing people to work more and more and more. And so <coughs> what we saw during the 19th century is an increase in the unionization of workers to demand increased working rights. And so there was a series of different industries that started to have their own unions and they started demanding increased worker rights. The really the beginning of this kind of modern worker movement uh, started around in the 1860s. So a big thing was in 1869, Ulysses S. Grant created a mandate that said that all government workers would be working an eight hour workday during their week and they could not have any decrease in pay even if they had if they were working less now. So that created essentially like a 48 hour work week. Most people are working Monday through Saturday. And so that was kind of the beginning of the modern work era. In 1926, 
Henry Ford issued a stand statement creating his 40-hour work week for his production fa fa uh, facilities. So that was the beginning of the 40-hour work week, and then it was cemented, I believe, in 1938 by the Fair Labor Standards Act. So in 1938, we really have the finalization of this 40-hour work week. This is the modern work week. And so this has been pretty standard across the 20th century. But interestingly enough, we start to see an uptick in average hours worked in the 1970s. So I have my own personal conjectures on why this happened. I want to share a little bit about why I think it happened, but I also want to give you all the space to ask yourself the question, why is it that we are really working more than we did in the past? So in the 1970s, three interesting things happened. So Nixon debased the US dollar, removing the gold backing and turning it into a fiat currency. In addition to that, we started to see beginning in debt expenditure, or our, in, we started to see a, the beginning of the current like uh, debt spending cycle or debt spending scheme of the United States. If you look at the US national debt over time, there's two big upticks in the 20th century one for World War One and one for World War II. Understandably, wars are expensive, but after World War II, you see a constant downward, like, downward movement in the United States national debt until the 1970s, the end of the Nixon era. And then from then, you have this constant upstream of national debt, and that's because we started all this debt spending where we started spending much, much more than we, than we did. The, or then we created. And the only reason that was possible is because the US dollar was debased from the gold standard. Prior to that, we were limited to how much money we could create or the Fed could create based on our gold reserves. When the US dollar was removed from being backed by gold, you now have this unlimited amount of money potential that could be created by the Fed. And so the last thing that's interesting is the United States average work week per, per worker began to increase in the 1970s. <clears throat> and so my opinion is this, we have this country with runaway spending, like exponential, exponential, exponential increase in our debt over time. We have to find a way to pay for that. All of the country's revenue comes from tax income. And so what we need is we need citizens that are generating more taxes. And the way they do that is twofold. They have to make more money and then they have to consume more. And so we, we exist in this weird psychic space right now in the United States of like excessive consumerism. It's so celebrated to buy things. Like everyone, everyone and their mother wants to buy things all the time. There's a reason for that. You get a big dopamine release when you buy something. But what most people don't really realize is that we're actually kind of been tricked into this state of consumerism. No one really needs an iPhone. No one needs to buy a new cell phone every six months but it's so culturally accepted and it's actually deviant. It's culturally deviant to not be a consumer. Like if you don't have enough money to buy a fancy car, you will be shunned in our society. And so we have all of these social pressures that are leading people to consume more. If you want to fit in, if you want to feel accepted, if you want to feel successful, you need to have a certain base level of income in order to have that base consumption level. And so then people are working more so that they can actually make ends meet and they can start living this kind of this idealized life that we'll call the modern American dream. And so the last thing that kind of like rounds the whole thing off, makes this lovely picture of the United States, is if you look at the inflation value, the inflationary value of the US dollar over time. So I'm looking at a chart right now. 
and it's showing 1910, one to one is the value of the US dollar. In 2015, the US dollar is worth, it's 2000%, it's, it's, yeah, it's 2000% less valuable than it was in 1910. So what that means is one, one dollar in 1910 would buy $2,000 worth of goods. I believe that's correct, it might be, so it's it's 2300%, so I think I'm actually incorrect. I think it means that one US dollar in 1910 would be equivalent to 2300 or excuse me, $230 in the modern era. But so that's a humongous increase. Like we, a lot of people out there are aware of some of the countries in the world that are experiencing hyperinflation. I'll use Venezuela as an example. So in Venezuela, the money is so invaluable that you can actually use it as a, like a natural resource to heat your house. It's cheaper to heat your house with dollar bills than it is to buy stove fuel or to buy wood. And so we have excessive inflation in the United States, just no one really is aware of it. And the reason for that is you have these government agencies that are controlling like the consumer cost of goods or the consumer basket of goods that's supposed to be a measure of the worth of a dollar, but then they actually control what's in that basket so they can change what is in that basket and then they show you and they say, oh, well, they're buying the same amount of stuff, but they changed what you're saying you're buying. So it's a really convoluted system and there's a lot of kind of intricacies to it. I highly recommend that you do more research, like learn about the Federal Reserve, learn about the monetary system, learn about <coughs> where all of our money goes in the United States and where your tax money goes to. But what you really need to be asking yourself is, and the question that's really important is, are all of these things that I'm spending my time to create and to earn, are they really worth it to me? Are they providing me fulfillment? Are they increasing my long-term health and happiness? And are they really satisfying my wants and my needs? So if you say you're an artist and you have this internal drive to paint, you can go to a museum and you'll satisfy that. But what you're doing is you're consuming someone else's content, you're consuming someone else's product. Almost always you're gonna be paying for it as well. And then once you leave that environment, you'll again have that internal stimulus that you haven't satisfied. And so a lot of people in our culture they're looking to satisfy this kind of internal fulfillment, this internal drive that we all have. But because so many of us have been misled into this path of consumerism, they're trying to satisfy it through materialism and consumption. And that's never, never, never like a successful approach because what, you're, what everyone is experiencing is when you buy something, you, you create a dopamine response in your system. Anytime you purchase something, your body is gonna dump dopamine into your brain and into your bloodstream. That's gonna create a really, really positive emotional response for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes. When you have microtransactions, and people don't really realize this, but like when you, when you go on Facebook, you're buying something. You're buying socialization and you're paying your time for it. So when you open your Facebook app, what you're getting paid in is the notifications that you see. And so you can have this dopamine microtransaction every 30 seconds. You keep pinging this neurotransmitter in your brain and eventually your endocrine system starts to diminish in what it can produce over time. So people ask themselves, oh, I'm feeling so depressed. Like, it's because you've been a fucking drug addict for years connected, connecting your brain directly to social media and relying on some external stimulus to moderate your emotional and hormonal state. And so when you step away from that, you realize that your fucking adrenal system, your endocrine system, and probably other aspects of your health are burned the fuck out. Like, 
There's a reason that when people go on vacation, they sit on the beach all day and drink Mai Tais. It's because they're probably exhausted in their normalized life. People don't realize this if you consume coffee every day. Like a lot of people don't even realize this about coffee. Coffee doesn't give you energy. <coughs> what caffeine does is it blocks the receptor for a chemical in your body that lets you feel tired. So coffee inhibits you from experiencing fatigue. It does not give you energy. It stops you from being able to feel fatigued. So when you have people that are in this constant drug cycle, they're taking caffeine, they're taking antidepressants, they're taking anti-anxieties, they're using alcohol, they're using stimulants, they're using psychedelics. <clears throat> maybe they're taking painkillers, maybe they're on all these other things. You're in this constant drug state and you can't really consciously or physiologically realize that there's something wrong. And so a lot of people will find themselves trapped. They're not aware of it. They're subconsciously going through this experience where they work all day doing something they don't want. They drug and medicate themselves, whether it's self-medication or medication from the doctor 24 seven. And then they just keep going through it because they've been numbed so efficiently that they don't have the stimulus to question what they're doing. And so again, to kind of, to kind of bring everything back together, you really need to ask yourself the question, is, is what I'm doing worth it? If you, if you have something you care about, something you're passionate about, and you're working hard for that, that's wonderful. But if you're sacrificing your health, your life, and your well-being, your whole life for something that you don't care about at all, that's what you really need to say, is this worth it for me? And the answer that I've always come to is, unless I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about, that I know is gonna impact me and the world around me in a positive way, it is not worth it. It's not worth it to lose sleep. It's not worth it to be stressed out. It's not worth it to sacrifice my health and my well-being. So <clears throat> I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I hope that you found some interesting tidbits and some, some new insight and a perspective that you haven't held before. I'm going to link most of these things, if I can remember them all, in the show notes below. And figure out, to kind of summarize everything, figure out what it is that you're craving. Figure out what fulfills you and then fill your life with those activities. You don't have to conform to anyone else's standards. You don't have to be, you don't have to live your life for anyone else. Figure out what works for you and then live that life. All right, that's it for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed and uh, be sure to stay tuned for next week's podcast. All right, bye.